This week on The Vergecast, Tom Warren and Dan Seifert join me and Dieter to talk about the big antitrust fight in the world, Epic versus Apple and Google. We also talk about the game streaming controversy on Apple's App Store, and we got to talk about the Surface Duo, Microsoft's new folding phone with two screens. That's coming up now on The Vergecast. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology... Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to the Cast, the flagship podcast for the Sherman Antitrust Act, Section Ooh. Two. It's. I was thinking I would start it like a like a bar review lecture class. Welcome. Please open your bar review textbook. Anyway, I'm not going to do that because that's horrible. And I just gave myself uh, vivid flashbacks studying for the bar exam. Anyway, this is the Cast, a show about technology, but today kind of about antitrust. I'm your friend Neil. Dieter Bone is here. I'm your valued business partner. Wow. <laughs> It's a lot, Dieter. Tom Warren is here. Hey, Tom. Hey, I am with the EU. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you're not, though, right? The UK? Uh, until the end of the year, okay. I guess. I mean, technically, no. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> Who knows a lot? Dan Sievert is here. Hello. I, I'm not with the EU. <laughs> Dan's like, I just talk about gadgets. A lot going on in the tech world this week. There was a fight about game streaming apps on the App Store. Epic, the maker of Fortnite, sued Apple and Google, got Fortnite kicked off of those app stores. The Surface Duo was announced. Uh, that's a Microsoft's dual screen folding phone. There's a bunch of Android news. There's just a lot happening in technology. I needed this crew to talk about it all. We're going to spend a lot of time on this antitrust stuff. It's a big deal, and I think it's going to change kind of the nature of the industry. But before we do all of that, as usual, all of this is happening in the context of the pandemic and the movement for racial justice in this country. So just some updates on our site because we're covering that stuff very heavily. I am at this point, I think, legally obligated to note that it has been 22 weeks since Donald Trump presented to the nation a flowchart about a testing plan where you would go to a website that uh, Dieter was Google that was building the website, right? 45 million Google engineers. Yeah. 45 million Google, Google engineers. Um, and then another, another 4 million alphabet engineers. <laughs> and then uh, Verily also part of alphabet was going to do a bunch more. Actually a real thing Verily done is they've set up their own approved uh, testing lab. So they're like, they're start, they're starting to be vertically integrated. Wow. But the website still doesn't exist as so, so far as I know. Well, then there, there is a, a website, but it's not the nationwide testing strategy that we need to actually uh, overcome the pandemic before a vaccine. 22 weeks since that happened. We're just going to keep counting. Uh, other pandemic news, the United States, on a similar note, uh, passed 5 million coronavirus cases 
this week, which is not a great milestone. Uh, you might have heard that Russia uh, said it approved a vaccine. Mary Beth Greggs, our science editor, wrote about that. It's an unproven vaccine. It has not gone through the appropriate set of trials. It's very controversial. You should read that piece to gain an understanding of what's going on there. Uh, and then sort of the I keep saying the second order of the pandemic is important. The things that are changing because of the economic impact of the pandemic, uh, big airlines are now just hoarding cash to get through it because travel is obviously down. Um, that's that's one of those stories. The airline industry is just deeply changing because of it. That's on the site. And then this probably shouldn't surprise anyone, but uh, vaping has been linked to a higher risk of COVID-19 in teenagers and young adults. I'm glad that we did a study to prove it. It should have been common sense for everyone. Don't. Don't monkey with your lungs in the time of COVID. Or ever, maybe? Yeah. And then lastly, on the racial justice front, uh, Jay Peters spent weeks and weeks and weeks assembling data around the pledges from big tech companies to racial justice initiatives. So in total, a billion dollars was pledged from big companies ranging from Comcast to Disney to Apple to Facebook. Uh, And he made a bunch of charts and put it all in context. Uh, It turns out compared to their profits, compared to their spending on other things. Um, this is just pocket change. And there's, you know, there's a lot of controversy around big companies using charity and using philanthropy to launder their public image. And when you look at these charts, that argument becomes a little more compelling. I think my favorite one is AT&T spent $73 million on an ad campaign for fake 5G, which is like <laughs> almost as much money as if they've committed to racial justice. So uh, read that piece. It kind of helps contextualize the scale of the problem and the scale of the, the scale of the effort that the, the corporate side of the world is putting into it. Uh, great piece. Very proud of Jay for it. All right. I never want to ignore that stuff. Obviously, I think those are the two biggest stories in the world. But I usually say, but there's tech news. But I actually think the antitrust stuff in tech is going to have long-term massive impact on the entire tech industry, on the consumer industry, as we're all sitting at home you know, the economy is changing around us. We're all mediated by screens. Who gets to put what on your screen? Turns out to be of earth shattering importance. And a lot of the action this week in tech was about who gets to put what on your screen. So I think obviously everyone knows the the big story is Epic suing Apple and Google, baiting them into a situation where they could file that lawsuit. We'll get to that in a minute. I want to step one day back. It was like one day before this. <laughs> The context of this is Apple was in another fight around streaming game services. So the one that's at the top of mind is, is xCloud from Microsoft. Tom, walk us through what happened there. So basically, Microsoft's going to launch this xCloud game streaming service, but only on Android. Um, they did a test of the iOS version earlier this year, and it was a really weird test. So on the Android side, they had like a bunch of their own games. Uh, I think it was around about 100 at one point. Um, on the iOS side, they had one which was Halo. Um, and they put it down to uh, complying with Apple App Store policies. They didn't actually say specifically which section or anything like that, but that was that was literally what they said back then. Um, fast forward to now, they obviously want to launch it in September, bundling it with Xbox Game Pass, but they're not launching it on iOS. And initially, they, they kind of didn't really say much about it. They were like, I'm in an hiring and, you know, we're, we're keeping this on the sort of down low. Um, but then they actually came out and basically sort of condemned Apple essentially for for blocking them from launching it on, on the App Store. Um after Apple issued a statement saying, you know, Google Stadia and XCloud and stuff are not allowed on the platform. So did Apple say why they're not allowed on the platform? They're saying they're not allowed under a sort of remote desktop uh sort of clause in the in the App Store where they you basically 
like they don't want you to connect to a remote computer that isn't your own that you don't own strictly yeah. i mean it's it's so complicated it's hard to actually break down so what happened was the microsoft it came, microsoft did the thing where like they're not on ios and business insider went to apple and said hey what the hell and then apple gave them the statement and business insider printed the entire statement it was actually the exact same statement so far as I know that they gave to mark garner and bloomberg like way back in march but because we can look at the entire statement as just like a block quote here is apple's justification it's like it's so obvious uh, that what we're doing here is like arguing about the moderation rules uh, and like uh, parsing out like why this but not that, and it it just caused everybody to like take another look and be like, what the hell? Why are VPN apps allowed but not game streaming apps? Oh, because you're connecting to a computer that you don't happen to own, sort of. VNC apps, not VPN. Apps. D- yeah, VLC apps. Sorry, VLC apps. Uh, okay, well, why is Netflix allowed but not game streaming apps? So, like, Apple's claim is for games, apparently, they want to review everything that you can play. So, they want to be able to review themselves every single Xbox game and every single Stadia game. And they want all of those games to be listed individually inside the app store. So for all intents and purposes, they're banning game streaming apps. So I feel like a very important piece of context for all of this is the fact that Apple makes most of the money on the app store from games. Yeah. And most of the services money that they make is from the app store, right? So Apple's big narrative is we're now a services company. We've hit the ceiling of iPhone growth. Almost every other product they make is an accessory to the iPhone. So all of their growth is limited by the size of the iPhone market. And so their big narrative over the past few years has been we're a services company. All these people have iPhones. We're going to collect more money from them. Inside of that, the biggest chunk is the App Store. And inside of the App Store, the biggest chunk is in-app purchases and games. Candy Crush. Well, and maybe Fortnite, actually. (laughs) And maybe Fortnite. And I I just – all of these conversations kind of center around – abstract principles, like, are you going to allow this app or that app? I just think it's very important to remember there's a ton of money from games at stake here. And so well, I think we're seeing with game streaming, with Epic, whatever, that's where the most action is. Like Spotify is mad too, but whatever. <laughs> like they just kind of <laughs> like go along with it. You know, Amazon is mad. They don't, can't sell. Can't, like it's not the biggest chunk of money in the game. Well, and the idea that this is an argument over like, you know, platonic principles of how a platform should work and is it is it we could have a whole what's a computer discussion and the difference between a console and a platform and a computer if you want i'm i'm i will have that discussion for days with you it's a spectrum you see um (laughs) but the idea that this is about those principles and not just about the money like Apple will only talk to you in in the terms of principles. It's literally about power. Well, you look back and the, like Amazon got got a deal, fifteen percent, right? According to yeah. the, the documents and the emails, it's about power, right? Like if you if you open up your platform and, and let someone build on top of it, uh, hello Windows and Steam. You know, Microsoft does not ha- have power over that 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 store. They didn't create a game store on the Windows Store, so they've lost that power there. Apple has created this app store. They they created it, and kudos to them. They did a great thing with the mobile side, but now they're trying to control it, and and they want the power over it. And 
anything that goes on the platform they control. There's no way of sideloading those apps on, so there's no way of getting around that power. And I think that's like the core, the core problem, and it comes into the Epic Game stuff as well. But that's the core problem, right? Like they want to control what's on their platform. Well, no, I, I, I agree. I just think very specifically, the two big disputes between some of the most powerful players in the game, Microsoft, Facebook, Epic, Apple, they're about games for a reason. Because that is the biggest chunk. It's the biggest entertainment industry, right? So. It's the biggest entertainment industry, but it's also the biggest chunk of Apple services revenue narrative. And so if you break that, their narrative actually kind of goes sideways. Because they're not making all those billions of dollars in services uh, revenue on Apple Music. I guarantee it's not Apple Music, right? They're not making it on Apple News Plus, the worst product that Apple makes. They're making it on in-app purchases and games, and they're pretending that it's all the other stuff. They're pretending their TV service is meaningful. Sure. And on top of all of that, like in the context of all that, is that xCloud is obviously launching on the Android side, but it's not launching with in-app purchases in the Google Play Store. Correct. It's like they, Microsoft's actually cut a deal with Samsung. We don't know what, what percentage. The, the default that Samsung offers is 30%, but they do specifically in their guidelines mention that you know you can cut a deal with us. Essentially, that's what they say in their <laughs> guidelines. You can cut a deal with us when, when yeah. your app's getting approved, basically. I asked Samsung for comments, and they're like, We'll get back to you, and that was that was that was fifteen hours ago. So okay, so I got I got deep into this tangent of in of of services revenue, but really what you're looking at is XCloud, Facebook Games, this next gen Stadia, the next generation of game services looks like the games run on a server somewhere. The video streams to you over the internet, and you stream control back to the games, right? And in a world like the one promise of 5G that I believe is that the latency on the mobile network will be low enough to make that worthwhile on phones. Yeah. And you could, you could tell that that's, that's brewing to be the future when Facebook, Apple, Google, well, maybe not Google so much, but Microsoft are all sort of like arguing about it, right? Like Google has suspiciously not said much about Stadia on iOS. Well, I think they got to make it. Well, they want to make work. it happen, presumably. Got, well, first it has to work. <laughs> so. They got to make it happen before they can make it happen. Like step one, <laughs> it works. Okay, we're fifty percent of the way there. Step two, people are using it. That's a little. It's maybe harder for Google. Anyhow, so the comparison Netflix here is really apt, right? And I think uh, credit to Renee Ritchie. I think he made this point in a YouTube video the other day. Netflix, you hit play, video streams at you from a server somewhere. Apple's not getting in the way of that. They're not reviewing every show on Netflix or Hulu or whatever. When it comes to game streaming services, Apple is saying, oh, we need to review every game available to you. So we're not going to let a catalog app like Netflix show up with games that stream and control streams back. That more than the VNC argument is where it just falls down for me, right? Like, what is really the difference between streaming video from a game running on a computer somewhere and streaming video from a TV service on a computer? So there isn't one. The like the interactivity of control is like not it's not a meaningful enough difference to me. No. And it, it, I think if you put it in the context of if that's Apple's argument. Um, that they want to review every piece of content and all that sort of stuff. Um, and if they truly think games streaming is different to video streaming, then you have to consider things like Bandersnatch. What, what was that then? Was that, yeah. was that, were you watching a TV show or were you watching an interactive TV show that you... I just want to point out, importantly, Bandersnatch was not available on the Apple TV. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, but that's probably a t more of a technical thing, maybe. I don't know. 
Oh, you mean the Apple TV that has the same processor as various iPads? <laughs> yeah. Like, if this thing can run on a Roku that is basically a hamster wheel of a processor. I mean, I think what happened was they started to test it on the Apple TV, and they lasted five minutes with Apple's remote. Like, you know what? Not worth it. <laughs> nope. Reed Hastings is, like, fumbling. He's like, screw this. It's not worth it. But I think Apple is enforcing this distinction around interactivity with ga- game streaming in particular in a way that doesn't hold up to this scrutiny of we need to keep your kids safe, right? Because if that was true, they would review all the other video that you can stream from things, whether or not that video is generative like video games or pre-recorded like Netflix. And they certainly are not reviewing live TV, which who knows what your kids will see on various live TV streaming apps. So that's the context. So Microsoft is mad. Facebook launched Facebook gaming on iOS without any games this week. (laughs) Just to say, like, look at what Apple made us do. Uh, We're going to take a break and transition in Epic. But I think one of the issues for both of these companies is that nobody's rooting for them against Apple this way, right? Like xCloud isn't a thing yet. Facebook gaming is run by Facebook. When they're mad at Apple, I don't think they, they build up that wave of support. Does that feel right? Yeah, well, like when Facebook is taking you to task, you know you've got issues, right? Like, (laughs) (laughs) but I don't think like I don't think people are really backing Facebook to to have mini games in their Facebook gaming app, which you know people people are using Twitch. We've seen we saw that with the Mixer closure. Everyone went to Twitch. I think really go to Facebook gaming. Um, So I think they're kind of an irrelevant part of the conversation. But XCloud could be. I mean, obviously XCloud is connected to Xbox. We're about to have an Xbox moment. With the, with the new generation of consoles, that feels much more fraught for Apple. But at the same time, what they're enforcing is the status quo, right? It's not a thing that people have that's being taken away. It's not a thing that people even know they want yet Yeah, that they can't get. It's everything's just the same for iOS users as ever. I think that's a it's important to sort of land there. This is the context. But in particular, the Xbox thing could be coming for Apple hard because uh, Tom's talked about this a bunch. Sean Hollister wrote a great piece on this. Like, I don't think I'm buying an Xbox, but I might buy Game Pass Ultimate uh, and like get a gaming PC and annoy Dan for six months about how to, how to <laughs> what, you know, which one I should get and how I should do it. And if Microsoft actually is successful in its strategy of it's not the console stupid, it's the service, uh, they could have a huge group of customers that are just like annoyed at Apple and annoyed at their phone. And like the big question for Apple is, are they going to be more worried about customers being annoyed at them and switching to Android? Or are they more worried about like, you know, losing that services revenue? I think it would, it's, it's also going to depend on what Apple does in this space, right? Like assuming they, they will be a player in this space somehow in the cloud gaming space, which you'd imagine they might be. Do they create like an Apple TV-esque app? First cloud streaming, I don't know. Like, who knows what who knows what they'll do? But I just assume they haven't figured that out yet. But Apple is also, and I, I, I say this with love, historically bad at video games. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like the the essay of Apple games now or Apple Arcade, and it was great to begin with. It sort of has died off. You know, you don't hear about it quite so much. There was some reporting that game developers were being pushed to make games that had higher engagement rates which sounds like the bad place. Like you hear that phrase and you're like, oh, we're just making trashier things. And it's to prop up that, like make the subscription worthwhile over time. So you're not paying for a month for games you don't play or not don't play a lot. Whether or not they can transition all of that into we're going to stream AAA games at you 
I mean, you can barely play a AAA game on the Mac. You know, like yeah. they don't they don't have that infrastructure. They don't have those developer relationships. They don't have any of that stuff except for the the free to play games in the App Store. Yeah, I think ultimately their play is probably, and we're at like a really weird point in hardware, especially on the iPad side, where like you know the only reason that Fortnite is on these mobile devices they've got so much more powerful now right fortnite is not a mobile game it didn't start on mobile um but it runs really well now like 90 frames a second just crazy so like in the next five years what are these devices going to enable us to do and does apple want to give up that you know the native experience of running these games like should they just say to microsoft no bring halo to the iphone if that's how you want it to run on the iphone so there's, there's so much there's so much going on with those devices and the way we where it's heading like there's a crossover and the, the the traditional console players see that they know it's happening they know it's about to happen and the, the things are shifting up so cloud is the way for them to go because they can't get on these mobile devices as long as we're talking about app store policy stuff i should disclose again that my wife works for the app store for oculus which is a division of facebook and i recuse myself from reporting on facebook or oculus or vr so i don't really know what their policies are i'm excited that the birds are going to join us for the rest of the show we're going to take a break <laughs> Tom's going to take a broom and try to chase the seagulls away. It's going to be great. We'll be right back, and we're going to get into Epic versus Apple versus Google. We'll be right back. Support of The Vergecast comes from Shopify. Whether you're a huge company or a small crafter trying to make a buck off your hobby, selling online is one of the best ways to grow. Shopify is one of the top e-commerce platforms that you can use to get started. But it's not just online. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And you can sell wherever, online or with their in-person point of sale system. You can also sell more with less effort with their AI power tool, Shopify Magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. You might recognize more brands who already use Shopify, like Rothy's, Brooklinen, Allbirds, and more. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vergecast. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash vergecast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vergecast. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Okay, so we laid the context of pressure on the App Store, right? We obviously had the, the hearing the other week, big deal, Tim Cook in front of Congress. They came after the App Store. We've, we know about Hay and DHH. We have heard about the streaming services. There is a lot of pressure on the App Store. But I think what happened with Epic this week is the thing that broke it open. Dieter, do you want to, this timeline is incredible. Do you want to walk us through it? So uh, we're recording this on Friday. So Thursday morning, a update to Fortnite appeared on uh, iOS and Android devices, offering a permanent 20% discount on V-Bucks if you buy it direct from Epic instead of via the in-app purchase standard thing on either iOS or Android. 
And this is deeply against the rules because on games, on Android, you have to use in-app purchases. And on everything on the iPhone, you have to use in-app purchases. Uh, also, probably not, uh, you know, according to the rules to just silently push a server-side update with that major functionality included. Just a thing. So it was very clearly designed to um, be a thing. Like, make these companies do I mean, they put out a it. blog post being like, screw you. Yeah. And to Tom's point, there are not many apps that can do what Epic did with Fortnite, right? They pushed a server-side update, so they did not have to go through app review, and they enabled new functionality in their app. Like, many apps can do that. It's not even server-side. Like, it's basically like you have a shell of an app, and then that downloads the whole of the game files within the app. And there's like, it's only really games that do it, and it's only the really bigger games. So, so that happened. Apple did not back down. Apple said, yep, you banned and, uh, well, no, uh, it took a, a long time. I mean, th- this happened in the morning. Yeah, yeah. And it was the late afternoon. Right. So Epic got to, ru- everyone wondered what was going to happen. For some time. And then we got a statement from Apple. And we got a statement from Apple. Do you want to read that statement? It's very long, but I'll read I'll read. I read the good parts. We broke this. We we had we had it first today. Epic Games took the unfortunate step of violating the App Store guidelines that are applied equally to every developer and designed to keep the store safe for our users. <sighs> keep the store safe for our users is going to come up a lot. As a result, their Fortnite app has been removed from the store. Epic enabled the feature in this app, which is not reviewed or approved by Apple, and they did so with the express intent of violating App Store guidelines regarding in-app payments that apply to every developer who sells digital goods or services. And then this—that's the first part. We banned the app. Here's why. The second part is like, this is Apple's line. It's actually, it's Google's line too, as we'll hear, but this is kind of their rationale and this is where they're going to keep landing. Epic has had games on the app store for a decade and have benefited from the app store ecosystem, including its tools, testing and distribution that Apple provides to all developers. Epic agreed to the app store terms and guidelines freely. We're glad they've built such a successful business on the app store. The fact that their business interests now lead them to push for a special arrangement does not change the fact that these guidelines create a level playing field for all developers and make the store safe for all users. We will make every effort to work with Epic to resolve these violations so they can return Fortnite to the App Store. If you remember, their line with Hey, the email app, was Basecamp is at apps on the store for a decade. They've built a business. They haven't paid us a dime. This is Apple's argument. We built the store. We own the platform. You haven't paid us. And in the same way that uh, AT&T deserves credit for the success of the iPhone and smartphones, Apple deserves credit for the success of uh, any app on its platform. I mean, it's, uh, I think depending on who you talk to in my mentions, that argument is either very convincing or not convincing at all. There is no middle ground. So this is like gamesmanship. And I, I want to be clear. I Epic issued the update knowing that they had a video to release, knowing that they had a complaint written and ready to file. Apple issued the statement, I'm more certain than not, knowing all the, all those things were going to happen. Oh, for sure. I don't know if they knew to the extent to which Epic was going to go hard. So Epic CEO Tim Sweeney, very famously uh, spiky and angry about this stuff. So they knew he was going to do something. I don't know that he was going to release a shot-for-shot remake of Apple's 1984 ad fighting against the evil corporate monopolist that they were going to try and break. For years they have given us their songs, their labor, their dreams. In exchange, we have taken our tribute, our profits, I mean, that part is very good. It yeah. was pretty. Um, it was pretty epic. 
Yeah, yeah. Wow. You might say that we're in the middle of a battle royale right now. If the seagulls can hear me attack Tom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Apple releases a statement. They pull the app off the store. The news breaks. It's chaos. Epic is not saying anything, right? We're asking for comment. We're DMing Tim. Like, say, and they're not saying anything. They release this video in Fortnite. They're saying we're having a special Fortnite event at 4 p.m. They release this video called 1980 Fortnite. It is is very good, regardless of what you think. It is very clever. And the hashtag at the end of the video is free Fortnite. We're taking on the App Store Monopoly. We got kicked off the store. Hashtag free Fortnite. They it are is. leveraging the army of Fortnite fans to change the public opinion of Apple. At the same time, tugging at like, like, like it seems like like this, this remake of the commercial is not going to like there people who are playing Fortnite right now are probably not going to know the original and understand the reference but we do <laughs> and like so like <laughs> the rest of press and like twitter blows up with this uh look at what they did and then the people in Fortnite can get latch onto the free Fortnite hashtag so it's like this double play to get like press interest and like general interest in the tech community and also interest from the Fortnite user base at the same time to come against uh, Apple with this movement that, that Epic is trying to make. Although I will say, if you watched any of the streamers that were playing Fortnite, the general reaction was like, what was that? Or yeah. was that, was that <laughs> That's it? exactly what I'm saying. Like they, they, they don't know what this is referencing, but like we do. You know who else does is like, Phil Schiller, Tim Cook, all the old yes. guard at Apple. And it really does box Apple in a little bit because Apple cannot credibly say that they aren't a titan. Right. Apple not being the underdog anymore is like this big theme. So they do this thing. And the reason I want to talk about that before any of the legal stuff is unlike Microsoft and xCloud, unlike Facebook gaming, now you've got an audience of people, kids who are at home who are probably able to play this game on their consoles and not their phones, who are having a thing taken away from them that they love and they have a hashtag, right? That is like, <laughs> that is a much better, that from a just a PR standpoint, right? Like that is a perfect, and Epic is big, it prints money. They are not afraid of Apple, clearly. Tim Sweeney is not afraid of the fight. They were able to do the update on their end to get kicked off the store. There is not another company that is situated to be in this fight. I think it's interesting that they chose now to do it. Like Fortnite has been on the app store for what, two, three years, whatever now. Like Epic must have looked at their growth trajectory and been like, we are at the point where Fortnite on iOS is kind of hitting saturation. They're not like getting a whole bunch of new users downloading. So we are going to play this move now to try and play our hand when it's not going to affect us in, as much in terms of our app growth, right? Like how many people are re, are new users downloading Fortnite at this, this point on iOS? So it, it was a very calculated in terms of like the timing of waiting this long to do it and doing it now and then knowing, obviously, that Apple was going to respond by pulling the app like Epic knew exactly what was going to happen. That's why they had this video ready. That's why they had what we'll talk about in a few minutes with the, the lawsuits. So it's like, it's almost like they are taking this principled stand now because the business is safe already. Like they already have the user base. Epic isn't an accident. You know what I mean? Like Fortnite isn't an accident. Tim Sweeney isn't the CEO of one of the biggest 
gaming companies world because he's bad at business. Like he lined up his <laughs> right, he lined up the dominoes and then waited to push them over. And like I think that makes sense. I think he also waited until after this hearing. Yep. And then he waited until pressure was forming and then he dropped a bomb. And I think a lot of the legal machinations are of the same type. And we'll get to that. So that's I just want to keep going through the chronology. So they dropped this video. They released the lawsuit. Incredible flex on how they released the lawsuit. They tweeted a link to a PDF. Yeah. <laughs> just a straight PDF on one of their servers. Like, no one does this. They're like, here's our argument. It's a fucking PDF. Like, it is the filing. We want you to have the primary source. It's not a website. You know, like Spotify does it. It's a beautiful website. Yeah. And like how unfair it is. They're just like, here's our, here's our complaint. Yeah. Oh, God, I want to talk about the plate. We can't. We got to co- go through the rest. I promise we're going to get there. I just I'm setting all the stage because I think that the moves in the complaint are as considered as all these other moves we're talking about. I think they're all of the piece at the same time. So this is all happening with Apple. They've made the video. The mm-hmm. fight is with Apple. And we're like, well, they did it to Google, too. What is Google? And uh, Dieter and I had this conversation yesterday. I was like, if Google is smart, they would just do nothing. <laughs> just, right, they would just be like, "Well, that was weird, huh?" <laughs> uh, but they eventually start. The wheels started turning, and eventually, eventually, it took them. It took them quite a bit longer than Apple to react, honestly. Uh, but they eventually did. And but, uh, so we, Google had to know that the lawsuit was waiting for them too. Of course, they knew. Right. Yeah, it's but it's like it's you know it's a, it's a percentage how much Apple knew the orchestration. I think they knew. Yeah, but you don't know for sure with Google. They had watched the whole cycle play out with Apple, and now they have the information. They could have just waited like three days. You know, they could have done it on Saturday morning when no one was paying attention because they were all playing Fortnite. You know, <laughs> nope, no. Like let's let's have the last thing that happens in today's news cycle be uh, Epic coming after us, and then everyone goes to bed. That's let, that's a great plan. <laughs> I was very mad because I had to read the complaint. They issue a statement. And we had it first. It was um, the open Android ecosystem lets developers distribute apps through multiple app stores. That is like a number one thing that Google wants to tell you. There's some issues with that, but we'll come back to that. Uh, For game developers who choose to use the Play Store, we have consistent policies that are fair to developers and safe for users. When Fortnite remains available on Android, while Fortnite remains available on Android, we can no longer make it available on Play because it violates our policies. But we welcome the opportunity to continue our discussions with Epic and bring Fortnite back to Google Play. So Google's whole thing is, hey, man. Uh, you can you can get apps on Android however you want. They specifically here aren't calling out sideloading because they know this this already happened with Epic once. Epic went off the Google Play Store and said sideload it, and then uh, it turns out that sideloading on Android kind of sucks because you got to click a bunch of scary prompts, right? Um, and this is why Epic came back, and they came back to Android like 18 months later, earlier this year. They came back, and Tim Sweeney's statement was like, "Yeah, we're back because." This sucks because no one's doing it because uh, Google is awful and these warnings on Android are terrifying. So this sucks, but I guess we're back, whatever. Um, So Google specifically isn't talking about sideloading. They're talking about competing app stores, which is weird because in the world where people use Google Play uh, everywhere but China, it's a joke that anybody really wants to use any other app store. It's like your phone is a failure if you don't have Google Play. Look at Huawei. But increasingly, Samsung is pushing its app store super hard. Both Microsoft and Epic are encouraging people to install their app via Samsung store because they don't have to pay as high a fee, apparently. Um, But otherwise, like, raise your hand if you've ever installed Apple's underground app store. I'm 
I'm raising my hand, but I, I, <laughs> I guarantee you it's me and like three people that are listening to us right now. No one else raised their hand. So this whole thing where you like you can go and install via third-party app store is true. It does give Google an out that Apple does not have and does not want to have, uh, which we could maybe argue about. But it's not the like it's not a clean pure as a driven snow, like we are morally better stance because third-party app stores don't work as well on Android as the Google Play Store. And in Epic's complaint, it gets into that. So I want to break these into two. So that's the chronology of the day. And well, the, and then Epic sues Google. Um, and Epic immediately sued Google. Yeah. Which yeah. we were all waiting. I mean, it was like an anti-climax. We're like, okay, it's finally here. Yeah. They, they, they didn't do a video though, did they? They didn't. No video. Google doesn't have an amazing fucking historic commercial that has embedded itself in the psyche of America. So no, no video. I mean, the video part where all like all that, like a bunch of teenage streamers and YouTubers are now all going to make explainers about the 1984. Like it's genius. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's great. I, you, you have to just appreciate it. They could have done a screw good video. Oh my God. <laughs> There's like three people who remembered screw. Uh, and they're all on this phone call. Um, <laughs> Okay, so there's two lawsuits now. I want to take them separately. I will say there's a lot of shared language between the lawsuits, a lot of shared claims, a lot of... Uh, they obviously mirror each other. One thing, uh, and they're both filed by the same set of law firms. One of the law firms here, which I think is... I don't want to like get to conspiracy theory on it. You know, like, don't overread this. But it's very interesting to me that Epic hired this law firm, uh, Cravath, Swain, and Moore. This is a huge mergers and acquisitions law. They're like a legendary law firm. They're usually on the side of big stuff. Okay. Right? So, Well, hang on. Epic's not small. They're like a $17 billion No, but, I, but in this specific way. They, they, also, they also represented Qualcomm against Apple. Yeah, that's what I mean. So oh. they represent Qualcomm against the antitrust action from the FTC, and they just won. Uh, one of the most famous, and this will come up as we talk about this case, for the next 10 years of our life. Uh, Wait, 10 in, years? This case is going to take 10 years. Why not Why not two weeks? That would be appropriate. <laughs> nope, 10 years. There's a Amex, uh, American Express, went all the way up to the Supreme Court on an antitrust case on a very novel theory of what's called the two-sided market. So merchants were suing Amex for unreasonable fees. Amex argument was, look, prices for consumers are getting lower. You have to consider the whole market. No one thought this was a winner. Very few people thought that was the right decision. Guess who won that case after one decade of litigation? Kravath, Swain, and more. So they're usually on the side of big stuff. You know uh, who Kravath also represented? Time Warner in the merger uh, with AT&T against the DOJ who was trying to break out that case. So this is a huge law firm that is usually on the side of consolidation. It usually wins the cases for consolidation and market power. So it's very interesting that they hired this firm to file this lawsuit. And I, and if you look at some of the lawyers, you've got an ex-FTC commissioner, you've got an ex-federal judge. This is heavy hitters. We've covered other app store antitrust cases before, and it's like it's usually like very rickety email apps, like whatever, right? Like this is not that. This is the real shit. So I just from the kind of the beginning, you're looking at Epic is in it. They're paying the money. And this law firm, which has had this streak of antitrust defense wins, is now on the offensive. And you can you can pay lawyers to do anything. What I mean, I can say I was a lawyer. So like it's fine. But law firms like this, they value their reputations. 
So they're not going to be on the streak of defense wins and then go on the offensive if they don't think they have a chance. Right. That's Again, I don't want to overread it. I just want to set that up. Like I'm reading the filings. Here are the things I'm noticing. Um, so before the, we get into the legal stuff, can we just point out that the like just like the video, the intros for both of these things, they specifically needled each company for Don't Be Evil and for the 1984 thing. And there's specifically like just the first two pages, you should go and read them because there's there's nothing legal about them. It's it's strictly a moral argument designed to appeal to, you know, everybody from me down to, you know, a 12 year old kid who wants Fortnite back on the App Store for the iPhone. This is tweeting the PDF. They want you to read this. Yeah. They want this argument to be the thing. They want people to make these arguments in public. Okay, so the Apple one, they're long. I will say this. I read the Apple complaint, and I'm like, this is an episode of the Vergecast. <laughs> That's what it is. It has a long argument in there about lock-in. It has a long argument in there about switching costs. It has a long argument in there about who else gets to distribute apps in the App Store. If you've been listening to this show for a long time, you're going to read this complaint. You're going to be like, tick, tick, tick. I recognize all those arguments, R- regardless of what side you're on, this complaint brings all that stuff to a head. So the heart of it is they define markets for each company. And the reason I want to take them separately is the Google market and the Apple market are differently defined entirely. So with Apple, the market that Apple is monopolizing and using con- like illegal contracts to maintain is one, the iOS app distribution market. So if you want to enter the market of iOS apps, Apple has a monopoly and they're using their contracts to legally further that monopoly. That is, okay. Yeah, it's a lot. And the iOS in-app payment processing market, which is the other part. So there's two things here that they are talking about. One is if you want to distribute an app on iOS, that's a market that Apple controls. The other one is if you want to accept in-app payments, that's another market that Apple controls. Now, one of the most common things about this argument is you say, well, if you want an app on the app store, you sign the contract with Apple and you agree to it, you're screwed, right? What these complaints are about is those contracts are illegal. Those contracts illegally further these two monopolies and these two markets that we defined. So if you just like take a step back from basically everything we've been talking about, public opinion, your own instincts, whatever, what is this case about? Whether Apple's contracts in relation to their markets as defined here are legal or not legal. Whether you are using your power in one market and whether you're taking your power in one market and then using a contract to tie another service into it illegally. It's it's the classic tying and bundling that Microsoft got in trouble for. So this complaint very much mirrors the Microsoft arguments. Yeah. Right. And there's a reason like lawyers are smart. They're saying that was a winning argument back then. We're going to structure this thing to look like that. And we're going to pursue it under that. So how does this how does this structure that are the contracts are they using their market power in having created the iOS ecosystem to make illegal contracts because they have monopoly on it get around like the like obvious thing that I'm sure Apple will say immediately and be very pissed about which is like we have a monopoly on the thing that we made yes so like we made the thing what we can't control the thing that we made what the hell like there's no there is no ios marketplace unless we make ios so and that's so we 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 saw that in that statement right we're very proud of you for making money on our platform right deal with it this is where the lock-in argument comes in so this is like a long section of this thing after they lay out all the harms and how there's monopoly so in a normal case you would have competition this is apple's like hilarious argument in front of congress like if people don't like it, they can just write their app for the PS4. Yeah. 
so this is like a long piece of the complaint where it says Apple's power in the relevant market is not disciplined by competition in the sale of mobile devices. There's no market force here making Apple act better. Isn't there it, Android though? Right. Apple mobile devices cost. This is from the complaint. Apple mobile device customers face significant switching costs and customer lock into iOS ecosystem. These conditions manifest themselves in Apple's ability to maintain its power in the sale of premium smartphones and tablets. Uh, and then here's this fairly wonky argument. Apple's power in the market is not disciplined by competition because consumers cannot account for and switch away from Apple's anti-competitive conduct through their device purchasing behavior. The cost of app downloads and in-app purchases are unknowable by the consumer at the time that you buy a smartphone and less than the price of the device. So you, when you buy an iPhone, you are not, as a consumer, aware of its contractual relationship with Epic Games. Unless you're a VergeCast listener. Unless you're, unless you're and God bless you all. Um, you're not aware of it. Or now that you're like a teenager on Fortnite being like, what's the 1984 ad? Um, but you're not aware of it. And you're certainly, because the price is so, like the marginal cost to you is so low, depending on the contract, 15% versus 30% to you as a consumer is pennies, right? It's not going to play a, a factor in your decision. So they're saying actually Apple's lock-in is preventing this, is preventing consumers from exercising their power in the market and forcing Apple to be better. This is, a, this is like the heart of this argument is ecosystem lock-in, which again, if you've been listening to the show, like when I say like, I read this thing, like, oh, this is a VirtuCast episode. Like, what have we always talked about? It's ecosystem lock-in. How many times is iMessage mentioned in the... Uh... I, dude, I scrolled through this so fast looking for... It's not in here. Damn it. So there's like this one argument that it's too hard to learn Android if you're on iOS. I don't buy it. Um, but then there's this, which does make sense. Switching from iOS may cause significant loss of personal and financial investment that consumers put into the ecosystem. Mm -hmm you have a bunch of apps that you've bought that you're gonna have to let go of. You have a bunch of in-app content that you might have bought that only works on that phone. You might not get all the apps that you want. All this stuff is there, and you've put it into iOS. You've spent all this money investing in iOS. And then you've got family and user lock-in. So if you have all your family members on iOS and all of your purchases are shared, switching to Android is a very high cost. FaceTime isn't there, so that's in here. Oh, iMessage isn't here. FaceTime, find my iMessage, AirDrop. Um, these are all features that you might use to prevent you from switching. So they're, they're making the argument that your switching cost as a consumer is so high compared to the marginal, right? It's $7.99 if you buy V-Bucks from Fortnite Direct. It's $9.99 if you buy it with Apple. That $2 is not enough to offset your lock-in costs, your switching costs. And then argument... You're also in the Apple ecosystem. So if you're an iPhone, you're likely to buy a Mac. You're likely to buy an iPad. That ecosystem lock-in prevents you, the consumer, from exercising market power. This is, to me, it's the argument, right? They're saying the market doesn't function because you can't. Consumers cannot actually switch away to protest Apple's policies. They might not know about them. The switching cost is so high. And the marginal cost to consumers of 15, 30, 20, whatever percent is a dollar. So why would you why would you care? So the argument here isn't so much uh, Apple shouldn't be allowed to have a locked-in ecosystem. It's that a function of the locked-in ecosystem is that people really can't switch away because it costs too much, and therefore it should be better regulated. It's a little bit more nuanced than the traditional how dare they walled garden. It's go ahead and have your walled garden, but because you have a walled garden, somebody needs to be able to go in and prune the bushes. It, I think this is more the argument of, well, we built iOS. We should get to do whatever we want on it. It's you've built iOS. You've also actively built barriers to access to customers on iOS. And if 
you believe, as I think most people believe, that phones are the most important computers in our lives, then that we should evaluate that, right? Like, is this a computer? Is this a general purpose computer? This is like the console argument, right? Like, Epic isn't suing Sony and Microsoft about PS4 and Xbox policies because those are game consoles. Like, they're targeted devices. There is competition between the two. But these are general purpose computers, and they can point to the Mac, which they do in this. They're saying all of these arguments Apple's making about security and privacy and user safety, they could make about the Mac, but they don't do it on the Mac. And you can see the competition on the Mac. Now, is that a good argument relating to Mac and Windows desktop applications? I don't know. I, I don't know. But it's right there for them, and they go ahead and, and make it. So the, the, the specific piece of the puzzle are, here are the markets. The market is iOS app distribution. Here's where the market has failed, right? Here's where the market isn't getting signal from consumers about what they want. And they're not getting signal from developers because, well, actually the other way around. They're getting a lot of signal from developers saying, we right. don't like this. But because there isn't pressure from the other side, Apple is the gatekeeper and saying, we actually don't have to react to the market of developers. Can we do a Vergecast antitrust lightning round with terms that I think our listeners have probably heard before? And there's two specifically I want to talk about, market definition and uh, consumer harm. Because when we've talked about antitrust in the past, we've been like, well, the definition has been, does it make, does, do consumers have to pay more money? And like that definition sucks, so we need some other definition. I don't know what that is anymore. Uh, and then there's like market definition, which is if you have a monopoly, uh, you have to like control the market. But if you like redefine the market to be some other bigger thing, then it's no longer a monopoly. So in Google's case, it's we don't have a monopoly on on web ads because there's the the, the market is all of advertising and all of history, right? Yeah. Amazon makes the same case with retail. We don't have a monopoly because we compete with you know Joe's you know popsicle stand or whatever. So do those two things that we've talked about a bunch apply to what's going on here? They do, and I, I think they're related in this very specific way, which is antitrust law over the past longer than that, 40, 50 years, has gotten increasingly more technical and like math-based mm -hmm. because of the consumer welfare standard, right? So the consumer welfare standard says it's it's not a problem unless prices go up. And then that invited a million economists to show up and issue surveys and data and studies about whether or not prices go up. Math ruins everything. Well, it just, it just became this very tangled, complicated math problem. And I think that has led people to approach components of the legal arguments is math problems. So it's not a problem unless you have 51% of the market, right? Right. And then you can define the market and you can do that. That's, I think, I think that's a mistake. And one of the big pushes sort of in response very lately is to get away from that hyper-technical economic approach to antitrust law and to say, look, you can feel it. And one of the reasons for that is Amazon, like Amazon like lowers prices. Google's services are free. Like, how can you prove prices will go up when the price is free? Or buying another competitor will just mean more free stuff paid for by monopoly profit somewhere else. So there's a big push on there. But I, I think it, I, I see this from, like, my Twitter replies or our audience. When they, like, the law isn't a math problem. Like, built into the structure of how cases are decided is the very real possibility that judges will get it wrong and be overturned. And then those judges will have gotten it wrong and someone else will look at it and maybe we'll overturn them. So it, there's not like an algorithm here that says if you have 51% market share and you define it this way and you make this much money, it's definitely wrong. There's just a bunch of people in suits yelling at each other in a structured way. But like the on the margin, it's yeah, the first thing you have to do is define the market. What market are you talking about? That's a first argument. 
And you obviously want, you know, here Epic wants to define the market such that Apple is obviously the monopoly, iOS app distribution. And Apple will define the market as app stores and say, look at how many app stores there are. I, I think that's just sort of less, it's less important about what the percentage is because the big push here is what's actually happening to users. Like that's the political climate that we're in. And I think that's very important. So that's, like, that's the Apple argument. They make three, there's like six uh, federal claims. There are a bunch of California state claims. I, I always think those are just thrown in. Like maybe California is stronger, you know, like, but basically they're saying the iOS app distribution market is a meaningful market. They've got monopoly power. They do something wrong. Um, they're, the payment market is a valid market. They're doing something wrong over and over and over again. If you read the complaint, and you should, you will note that it's written as though everything is true, that everything they're saying is absolutely true. Yeah. Because that's how complaints are written. That's how, like, they're, they're, saying, they're saying what they believe. Apple will have to reply. We'll see what Apple has to say. But that's the Apple one. It is very much about ecosystem lock-in. Like the heart of this is this market has failed because consumers cannot express their preferences about Apple's prices because they're locked in. That is very different to the Google argument. Right. Epic's point here with Google is that the first market they define is the merchant market for mobile operating systems, which is very boring. Uh -huh. But all that basically means is that Windows Phone failed. Just be honest. <laughs> <laughs> That's what that means. Uh, and we're going to talk about the Surface Duo. It's like, there's a theme here, right? If you want to make a phone, you have to use Android, unless you're Apple. And they're very clear about this. And so if you want to make a phone, you have to use Android. If you want to use Android, you end up in Google Play services. You end up using the Google Play Store. Again, it sounds like an episode of the Bridgecast. Once you do that, Google has a lot of power over you. Yeah. We've talked about these contracts a lot. And so if you want to make an alternative app store, the argument here from Epic is, yep, you can make your own app store, but Android is designed to make that scary. It will tell you that sideloaded files are dangerous. It will pop up warnings about how you shouldn't do it. It has security features like Play Protect that restrict you. You have to enable sideloading and it warns you. Alternative app stores are not allowed to do auto updating, which is a key feature of app stores. So they're saying, yes, they've got this argument. Yep, sideloading is available to you. But at every turn, the user is told not to do it. So that's a design decision. And then there are multiple examples in this complaint of contractual restrictions placed on phone vendors to keep them from working with Epic. So the, this is why when I was talking about uh, Google's statement about how Android is open and you can sell any store you want, it's fuzzy because historically, like in the misty mists of time before the iPhone was released and like broke the carrier monopoly and everything was about crapware, the most important thing about phones was what was on deck. And on deck meant what got preloaded out of the box when you you know, bought it from the carrier, those games, that was the only way to make money with an app, full stop. And so all of the negotiations for software were these like really complex, gnarly backroom, smoke room, filled room deals with carriers and manufacturers, right? Ahead of the phone's release. And then the iPhone came along and it was like, you know what? We don't like AT&T and we think this thing is pretty good. So we're just not going to do any of that shit. And it worked. And then every, everything was beautiful and glorious until Samsung wanted to get a deal from Verizon and things started turning down a little bit. But it turns out that that was never the story was never that clean on Android anyway, because Google has been using its power with the Play Store to get all sorts of stuff on deck from manufacturers and carriers. You know, when you 
open up your Android phone and there's a folder that says Google on it, there's a reason for that. There's money behind that. And Epic is specifically sort of like pulling the curtain back a little bit more on some of those like backroom deals to get stuff on deck to push the Google Play Store than we were aware of before. We knew some of it from uh, Russell Branham got some, you know, looked at some contracts uh, in France, I believe it was. The EU has gone after Google specifically for this stuff, and we could get into all the browser ballot, blah, 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 blah. But, like, fundamentally at the core of Epic's case is Google's stance that Android is open, you can do whatever you want, fundamentally isn't true because Google exercises so much power behind the scenes before the phone even shows up in the store. Yeah, and, and and that power is is basically something called Google Mobile Services, which is like an API a, API layer that they sort of bundle with with any phone that they say you can get access to Google Play Store. But what that actually does is, if you're a developer, you create an app. Say I created Snapchat. I rely on some I don't know camera APIs or something like that. You, Google's been bundling more and more of those into GMS over the years. So basically, you become reliant on this this layer. Um, that comes with Android, Google, Google Android, let's call it, not uh, Android AOSP. And if you want to go to another store and run that app, sideload it on another store, it just won't work because that layer's not there. Like and a lot yeah. of these apps just don't work. Like I, 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 you'd be surprised at how many do work. So this is specifically called out in the complaint. So where the heart of the complaint against Apple, and I call it the heart, I mean, it's a very long complaint, but that big lock-in argument, that Epic makes against Apple is here in a pared down form. But what's really here in the Google complaint that's not in the Apple complaint is that license. So they call it the Mobile Application Distribution Agreement. Through the mo- through that agreement, Google requires OEMs to locate the Play Store on the home screen of each mobile device. They must further pre-install up to 30 Google mandatory apps, locate those apps on the home screen and the next screen. These requirements ensure that the Play Store is the most visible app store any user encounters and places any other app store at a significant disadvantage. And then it goes on to say, hey, we actually tried to make a deal with OnePlus, right? Where OnePlus has high refresh refresh rate screens. We are going to pre-install the Epic Game Store. We are going to run uh, at the highest frame rate possible. And then Google stepped in and said, no, you can't do that. And we actually only launched that deal in India in one market where Epic could get it, or where Epic and OnePlus could get away with it. Uh, the quote from OnePlus to Epic, Google is particularly concerned that Epic Games app would have the ability to potentially install and update multiple games with a silent install bypassing the Play Store. Getting around this, the app would be rejected due to the Epic Games app serving as a potential portfolio of games and games update in competition with Play Store. So we've got this evidence from OnePlus. They were going to make this deal to do side loading and run Fortnite at a higher frame rate. And Google stepped in and said no. LG had the same. There's evidence here of LG saying it had a contract with Google that blocked side downloading off the Google Play Store this year. Mm-hmm. But if you use a Play Store, we can definitely make Fortnite available. Google prevented LG from installing the Epic Games app on LG devices. So what you're looking at is, yep, they've got this technical out. You can check the box. Sideloading is available on Android. But at every turn, Epic's claim is that Google makes that hard for consumers, impossible for OEMs. This, I think, gets to the other thing I've seen all over Twitter in the past day, what Epic really wants to do is make its own store and take its own cut, right? They're, this is totally self-serving. All Epic wants to do is take even more money and make Steam for phones. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I think they want to do that. I think the game here is if they did that, would you trust it as a consumer? Would you trust that it was as safe and secure as the iOS app store or the Google app store? Would develop, Would they offer a lower rate to developers? And would that force the rate on the Google and Apple stores to go down? 
because that would just be competition. I think it's totally acceptable for Epic to have a very self-serving interest here because what you want is competition for app distribution. And that, I should have said this at the top, but you know, at, at the beginning of both of these complaints, Epic says, we are not after money. We do not request any money. We don't request any compensation. We don't want any damages. We just want this changed so that we can compete, which I think is very smart. Also, Epic prints money in Fortnite. Like, they sell fake money to people for real money. That's their business. It's incredible. But there's also the context that... They can just do that. Yeah. And, and of course they want app stores within app stores. Like this is literally Tim Sweeney's argument with Windows and with the HoloLens and stuff. Like he's been a big against uh, the Windows Store and, and all that sort of lockdown that Microsoft attempted there um, for good reason. By the way, the other line here, there's something called the uh, the developer distribution agreement that Google makes everybody sign if you want to d- deliver an app in Google Play. It restricts you from selling an app store in the Play Store. So like, well, if you made it your own app store, what would be the best way to, to put it out in the world? What would be to put it in Play Store? And so Epic's argument is you're making it at every turn, you are making it hard to sideload on Android. And one of the, one of the places we're making it hard is I, we can't put the Epic Game Store in the Play Store, which is very circular. You know where you can get the Epic uh, Game Store is in the Samsung Galaxy Store. <laughs> That's amazing. So then there's this like long part. And I'm just going to read these words to you, and I just want to see if you guys laugh as hard as I did. Direct downloading Android mobile devices, however, differs dramatically. Google ensures the Android process is technically complex, confusing, and threatening, filled with dire warnings that scare most consumers into abandoning the lengthy process. This makes it seem like your phone lights on fire when you try to sideload it. And I'm like, is it? It doesn't feel like that. It's not that bad. Uh, it's, not, it's not as nice as it could be. I, I I agree with the fact that like the the warnings are just like ten percent more arcane and scary than I think they need to be. Um, but Google has an incentive to do that. If you you know like if they don't make them a little bit scary, then you know people are just going to go install a bunch of really bad pirated shit. Right. That's that's the reason. If you want to give Google the benefit of the doubt on those warnings, and I think it's fair yeah. to say that consumers have gotten used to the idea of an app store now. So, like, trying to sideload apps with, like, weird security warnings is going to make people go, huh? Should I do this? Well, so uh, let's take, I think Google and Apple both have valid security arguments. Let's just, like, take them at face value. There are more phones than any other kind of computers in the world. More people use them at every level of sophistication. Android phones in particular have had malware issues in the past. Phones are high-profile targets for hackers and security people, shouldn't they be locked down? Right, like, if you make a world in which there's a bunch of malware on the web saying, download this app store, and then the app store can download whatever apps it wants, like, aren't you opening up the bad thing? I mean, I would have more sympathy for that argument if we didn't somehow survive uh, 1975 through 2005 without the apocalypse <laughs> coming, right? Like computers managed uh, to continue uh, working. Uh, there were some close apocalypses along the way. Okay, sure. But like, like you just it. read Sandworm? Yeah, okay. I did just read Sandworm, and it's it's a lot. I don't know. The the, the thing about Android in particular is uh, even if you even if you never install a single app from the Google Play Store, but you still have Google Mobile Services, they're scanning your apps and checking for stuff, and they can like they can remotely reach into your phone and pull something bad out if they if they know something bad is on there. 
there's actually a much higher level of control separate from the App Store on Android in particular that doesn't get talked about all that often because it doesn't we we don't see it on most of the big name apps. But there's a, a slew of like just bottom of the barrel garbage malware stuff that Google just has an index of and is looking for constantly and can just reach into your phone and pull out whether you sideloaded it or installed it via the Play Store. Tom, I've, I feel like the Windows example is kind of instructive here. Yeah. Right. Like Windows has had to get increasingly more locked down after sort of the, the Windows 95 free for all. How does that model work? Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of similar. So it's some of the stuff that like Google does, especially on Android, because um, they're, they're pretty much the equivalent, right? Like Android is the mobile equivalent of Windows in, in very many ways. And like these agreements and stuff like that, that's exactly what Microsoft used to do in the 90s. They used to force all their partners to bundle certain things or like they couldn't do this and they couldn't do that. Like it's just the classic sort of thing that, that Microsoft used to do with Windows. How it's changed is obviously Windows has now been influenced by mobile. Uh, everyone's got a computer in their pocket now. And Microsoft tried to respond by like trying to lock things down, but not in the same sort of fundamental way. So the, the difference here is that like if Microsoft was to win in the HoloLens generation, if they won that out and everyone was wearing a computer on their face and that's the next thing that we'd all do, then the difference is they've actually committed to allowing app stores on, on that platform. And Tim Sweeney was part of that announcement. It's, it's something they've committed to do. Like they probably won't win it because, you know, Google and, and Apple have that dominance there that they, that Microsoft just can't play off if, if, if we're ever going to wear these things on our faces anyway. But yeah, like on, on, on Windows itself, they tried to like, I, I guess sandbox apps. So you wouldn't get these like ransomware malware crapware sort of stuff happening on windows so they've tried taking some good aspects of the mobile side and tried to apply them to windows um but tom windows has a uh, a scanning utility much like Dieter described on android right i think maybe they don't have the ability to reach in and grab something but if you download a file like i think it's called smart screen if that is that right and you try to run it they have like an index that yeah. will stop you from installing it yeah smart screen will basically flag up something and obviously Chrome does it as well. Like there's multiple layers of this stuff. Um, and then there's Defender, which is like their antivirus. But Smart Screen basically sort of like takes a check of the file and says, hmm, does anyone actually download this regularly? Like, and it will say, you know, this hasn't been downloaded regularly or this this isn't like a certified file. Do you sure you want to run it? And you have to go through some scary prompts to allow it. You have to kind of like really dig in to actually allow it to run. So, Well, so, uh, you know, on the Mac, Apple is doing code signing for Mac applications now. Yeah. So you can download a Mac application from anywhere. But if the developer hasn't signed it with Apple and Apple doesn't have some keys, you have to jump through some hoops, right? I, the reason I wanted to get into it is I think that is Apple and Google's best argument here. Right? We have seen, we have looked chaos in the face with open app distribution on the desktop. There is not one but two orders of magnitude more of these devices in the world. We and there are they are cameras and microphones that people carry and location trackers that people carry with them all the time. The stakes are higher. I always think it's very funny when Apple and Google are like, "We're not smart enough to solve this problem." Like, come on. <laughs> I think that you are. And there are these like mechanics that they use on the desktop that you could maybe apply. I think that like I don't have a point of view on it. Right. I, I think it's. That's the thorniest part of this is one of the reasons my parents have iPhones is because I just don't have to worry about some of this stuff. Yeah, like, I, like, I, don't, I don't think the answer is to like have a second app store on, on, on mm -hmm. the iPhone. I mean, it's just complicated for the consumers. It's just, you know, like it will it'll create good competition, sure, maybe. Um, but I think the answer is just 
for the policies that Apple applies to be more fair. And and they're cut, like they they can take a cut, like they're entitled to a cut for running that service. But I don't think thirty percent is the cut, right? That, that's that's a that's a huge amount. That's a difference, especially when we're talking about games. It's a difference between a studio hiring two more people for, for a title or like, you know, not focusing on so many games but actually putting some love into a title than than them not. We were, we were talking about two giant corporations at the moment, but this really yeah. folk, like goes all the way down to indies. And You see, Tom, in, in 1987, if you wanted to buy a software from Babbage's, you had to walk into a store and pay for a cardboard box, and they took like a 50% cut or more. It's true, yeah. The market um, forces are there, I know. But like, Yeah, but like there are multiple stores. Yeah. I mean, that's like, this all comes down to, there used to be a lot of competition, and maybe the numbers were higher, but if you were if you were a software vendor, if you were and what was it Mac who made Oregon Trail, if you were like making Oregon Trail and like you're like I'm mad at Babbage's, <laughs> I'm going to Software City, like you could do it. <laughs> like, and it also comes down to like when when Steve Jobs launched this app store in 2008, he specifically said like it, it, he said to like Wall Street, uh, we don't think this is gonna be a massive profit generator and stuff, even though they had the 73 split. But we think this is going to improve the value of the iPhone and make us sell more of the iPhone hardware, which is where we're making our money. Like, that was their original, I mean, whether he truly thought that or not. Like, but I think, I think it comes down to that. Like, should, should Apple be allowed to take that 30% cut on, on everything now just because they've created this railroad? Or should they be a bit more flexible either? Like, I don't, I don't know whether another app store solves that. I don't know if killing some of these iOS policies solves that, but I think the key thing is that 30%. It's been a sticking point for Spotify, you name it. Um, everyone else, everyone's upset about that 30% cut because it, it gets, it's everything. To bring this back to where we start, right, Tom, I think that's a great point. Apple's statement with Hey, with Fortnite, with Spotify is we're very happy you built a business on our platform, but it's our platform. And with Hey, they're like, well, you never paid us a cent. And here it's like, we give you tools and distribution and advertising. We make these great phones, like pay the money. And either you find that very convincing or you think that is a bad argument for Apple to take a cut of everything that happens on its phone, right? Like that is, I would just point Apple is the richest company in the world. They do not need to take a cut of every, they, they have so much money. They, they're every time they do results, they're doing share buybacks and dividends, right? They're returning money to investors at a high rate. They don't need the money for R&D or investment or tooling or whatever you need to make the next phone. So you got to, I mean, I don't have a position on it. Like, should Apple get a cut of everything that happens on the phone? Like, maybe. Like, I, I think it's great that my parents' credit card is, like, not being entered into text fields all over the internet. That makes me happy, you know? But is the argument, we built the phone and now you're going to pay a tax if you want to access a consumer, a good argument? Like, that's very much at the heart of all this. Okay, I want to end... On a the, well, this is not gonna end. First of all, <laughs> this case, I, I read these complaints. Epic is not backing down, right? They're not asking for money. There's no amount of money that you can pay Tim Sweeney to make him go away. They're asking for structural change to how these stores work. They've hired the fanciest law firm they can hire for this thing in opposition to that law firm's own history of litigation. That law firm also wants a big Halo win. There is a congressional antitrust investigation going on. There are state level antitrust investigations going on. 
they're in this thing for the long haul. Either Apple and Google are going to back down tomorrow, which I don't think they are going to do, or they're going to litigate this thing to the Supreme Court. So I think we're going to talk on this for a long time. I think there's going to be a lot of like discovery and emails and all that stuff is going to happen. So we can stop talking about it now <laughs> because we're going to talk about it for the next 10 years of our life. But I will end on this, the most verge cast wonky thing. So I'm reading the complaints. I get to the counts and I notice that all the counts are the Sherman Act, which is one of the antitrust regulations in America and not the Clayton Act, which is the other one. The Clayton Act is very specific. It prevents tying. Right. It has anti-tying, anti-exclusive dealing, like outlaws those things specifically because the Sherman Act was not specific or powerful enough for Teddy Roosevelt. This is a real thing. OK, I tweet. I don't understand this. Why didn't they why didn't they use these specific laws in the Clayton Act? And a bunch of lawyers replied to me, the Clayton Act only covers the sale of goods, physical Ooh. goods. Ooh. Are Fortnite skins goods? Mm. I mean, they're good. But are they good? <laughs> but are they good? Are they, yeah. are they good? Are they commodity? Are they are they sheets of copper piping or whatever? Right, like that's where we are, we're at with the law. Like, the laws were written in the, like 1917. I think I think that's that's the problem, right? These these laws are so old, and things move so fast. Like I didn't even realize it was Friday today. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I I would like more credit for my two week joke, but we can, we should move on to the next section. <laughs> the Sherman Antitrust Act is 1890. The Clayton Act is 1914. And so it's a real question whether a digital good in Fortnite meets the requirements of goods. I don't know, man. But like in terms of Verge cast questions, it's a pretty good one. All right. We got to take a break. We're not going to do another hour on the meaning of goods. Although Dieter, I can see his eyes. Are lit up. <laughs> He's raring to go. We'll have a special episode of the Verge cast of Dieter just ranting about the nature of virtual scarcity. Look for that. Never. All right. We're taking a break. We're going to head back and talk about the service duo. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. All right, enough antitrust law. Let's talk about some flippy phones. They're phones? 
Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what no. is a phone? I thought uh, Lauren Good had a great uh, piece at Wired where she was like, Microsoft made this ultimate mobile productivity device, and now they have to convince you that it's good on the couch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was fun. It was a fun read. But Tom, Service Duo is out. Notable piece of hardware. Talk, tell us about it. Um, yeah, so it's coming September 10th. I mean, we, we kind of know about it, I guess. We, we, we knew most things apart from the specs inside. And um, I think that's been quite the conversation this week, the specs and the price. Those are the two sort of things we learned this week. Um, so it's 1400 bucks, which is probably, I'd say, 400 more uh, more than it should have been. Um, it's a at lot least. of money. It's a lot of money. <laughs> and the specs are old. Uh, you got an eight eight five five, I think, in there. Qualcomm eight five five Snapdragon eight five five processor in there. Um, no NFC, no five G, and the battery's kind of diddly for two screens. Like, I think I think there's just a bunch of questions around it. But like, and I know everyone's going to talk about that and and all that sort of stuff. But I think that is kind of like an aside to what they're trying to do. And I think like when the, th- the surf- first Surface Pro came out, everyone was doing the same thing. Like, what is this thing? It's weird and. And Surface Pro 3 came along and it was like, oh, okay, I, I understand their vision. I think that's where they're trying to go with this. Um, it's whether their vision is correct, whether you need two screens on mobile to like do more, if you believe that. Um, I think that's that's the fundamental. And whether they can twist the arm of an operating system that they don't technically control into making those two screens work. I mean, they're like literally adorable on Twitter at each other right now, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, but they're not the developers of all the other apps that you use on Android. Yeah. So like, like, I mean, like Android has supported tablets for so long. And the story with Android is that tablet apps basically don't exist on Android. So like, yeah. How can Microsoft make that work? But I think the only way, I think the way that they're doing it initially with this hardware, and I know it's not as sexy looking as the fold two and everything, but having those two screens separate actually gives them that kind of like app advantage in a way, because those apps do run separately. They don't have to span across the, the bigger display. Yeah. Um, so they're kind of getting away with it initially. And, and, and sure, this thing's going to fold in a couple of generations, right? So. Yeah. I actually think the Surface Duo looks better than the Galaxy Fold, um, but I don't know if it'll work better. Um, let me give you my hottest, hottest take. You ready? Uh, they couldn't <laughs> fit a good big enough battery in there. They had to go with an older processor. I don't actually care about that. Uh, I'm not like, if the specs are bad, it's going to be bad. I love the Pixel 4, for example, so it's possible to overcome mediocre specs. I'm very worried about the camera, uh, and I'm worried that they're not going to nail it on the first try. So my hottest, hottest take is they know that they don't have it yet, that it's going to take a little while longer for them to get better at hardware for it to be what they want it to be, and they got to work on the software. And because the specs are bad and old, they chose to price it high because then fewer people would buy it because then it will be less likely to tank the thing in everybody's minds because only a core group of enthusiasts will buy it, and that will give them time to continue iterating on it for V2 and V3. I mean, that's a... Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it's, the the way I think about it, right, with any Surface device, whenever they launch a new one, so it always brings me back to this quote from Ralph, who's their uh, design lead, Ralph Grown. Um, he said, we have like three generations of a Surface product when we launch one on, on three tables in a secret room at Microsoft. So they know where they're going. Like the third generation is like the, the, the perfect one, right? Like that's, that's where they're going. So you, you always have to look for that third generation of Surface stuff because that's ultimately the the vision realized with the the hardware they're able to do so i think anything that they do up until that point is like testing the wars and getting developers interested because they need they need something for people to build on to, to to get these things going so they always brings me back to that so yeah I, yeah i wouldn't surprise me if that's their their grand plan 
when they announced it, we had Panas on the podcast. I we got to use it for a minute. He let me swipe through his phone. I've seen uh, Sachin Adela use it as his phone in another event. But then I'm reading the coverage and like Harry McCracken at Fast Company had one. He was like, this is pretty buggy. Yeah. And so like, I'm like, what happened? Like last year it was like I was watching the CEO of Microsoft. I mean, maybe he was just like pretending to use it. But like it looked like he was using it for real. And like we flipped through Panos's and it looked fine. So I'm curious what happened along the journey to making it complete. So they haven't really demonstrated much of it. If you remember when we had it, we, we were able to take photos. We couldn't really touch it and play around. The, one of the first public demonstrations they did, it was like a developer event um, and it crashed in the middle. Like they couldn't span apps and stuff. Like that. It, was, it was super like just laggy because um, of the two screens. And everyone was like, you know, it's beta. It's, it's still coming. And then they did the press event the other day, the behind closed doors thing. And a couple of times the apps crashed there as well. Um, it, it seemed a lot more polished and a lot less laggy and stuff. And and these are Microsoft's own apps, right? Like this is like yeah. Office and Outlook and like Word crashing. There might have been a Kindle crash. <laughs> I think, yeah, it was, it, there was a third party app crash. <laughs> I can't remember which one it was. But I mean, these things happen during demos and stuff. But like, it would not surprise me if there's, yeah, if there's going to be some some bugs around the edges here, um, especially just having to, to power two displays as well. So someone pointed this out at me when Panos was on the Vergecast announce, we said, how much is it going to cost? Because what do we, honestly, if you're an executive and you show up with a new product on a show and doesn't have a price, I'm going to ask you how much it costs for an hour. Just be ready for it. What's pricing on that thing going to be like? I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. Am I going to be happy or unhappy? Happy. Super Describe happy. Describe my feelings. Mike, uh, you, you will be elated. I like elated. Yeah. <laughs> I think you'll be pretty pumped about it. I, I am. Are you happy? <laughs> I don't know that $1,300... $1,400, $1,399. I don't know that that was the number in his head when he told me I was going to be super happy, right? Like, that can't be the case. But at the same time, I think it's like 240 chess to say they raised the price so high so no one would buy it and they could skate out a first generation. Like, I said it was a hot take. I know it's a hot take, but like, you know who's going to get, like, you're going to get one and Joanna's going to get one and Lauren and Marquez and like all of these reviewers that people like and trust are going to be like, this is very expensive. This processor is a year old and this Kindle app is a mess, right? Like that is still <laughs> going to be in the world. Like they still have to, like Panos is not out there trying to make a half-baked product. Like he obviously cares about the products being good. I Maybe the spec thing and maybe the development in COVID pushed it back. But I think the part where they're trying to hide a bad product by announcing it with like the world's most adorable tweets at the operating system vendor you know, like, I, I just don't think they're playing that game. No, I, I think the, the fundamentals, whether you look at the basic hardware, like, like I was saying, you can look at the hardware and the price and all that sort of stuff, but it's really whether you need two screens and whether that's actually going to change the way we use phones. Like, because this is the promise that Samsung, like, it, what did Samsung say? It was like their pillar of their future or something like that. It was a pretty grand statement. So if Microsoft's betting that as well. Like something's happening here. I don't know that it's necessary, but I will tell you, having just used the busted ass fold a couple of times, yes, I want to have a thing that folds out into a bigger uh, canvas. Full stop. It's great. I love it. Um, you know, like we have iPads at home um, and I would say like half the time I'll catch myself just like on my phone for a half an hour and my iPad is two feet away. 
It's like, what am I doing? Why am I not using the good screen? And so having the thing that you're going to pull out and look at anyway be the good screen is very, very compelling. Yeah. I think I kind of agree with Samsung and Microsoft, but I'm just um, I'm apprehensive about whether the hardware will truly get there soon. So I think the software and stuff, you can do anything in software, right? Like that's that's less of an issue, but getting that hardware there in the next few years is, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Is it like foldable glass? So I will, I mean, I, I just recall Panos being very skeptical of plastic screens, right? And yeah. like there have just been a lot of hints in the world that where Microsoft wants to go is foldable glass and they're waiting on Corning and Corning has some prototypes out there. Like I think the big bet for all these companies is a form factor shift, right? Like that's what they're saying. Like we we've done rectangles. We lost at rectangles. What about squares? Microsoft's time to shine. And like whether or not you believe the core screen technology is good enough to enable that fold and you you start with dual displays and just get people there. I think it's smart. I, I think the big question is, right? It's app developers, it's ecosystem. It's whether, I mean, I just, I, I've probably said this anecdote on the virtual chest 10,000 times. So I just remember Tony Fidel being like, every year we changed the, the way the iPod looked, right? Like one year it was fat and one year it was skinny and one year it didn't have any buttons. And the next year they're like buttons again. And like, they just made it look different a lot. And that kept consumer interest high in what was effectively the same product over and over and over again. And like, that is just, it's a lesson that has stuck with me as the phones like continue to be rectangles. How do you make it look different? You make it fold in half. And so if Microsoft can just capture that moment and get people to buy another Android phone and like cut a deal with Epic and be like Fortnite's on this <laughs> phone, <laughs> like it's a pretty, there are big moments for them to capture attention. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I think, I think the, the app development side is going to be crucial, isn't it? Like, especially given the Android situation with, with tablets and stuff. Yeah. I mean, both Microsoft and Android have shown an incredible ability to get developers <laughs> to make apps for new platforms. <laughs> The interesting sort of thing about all of this, though, is that like basically Samsung engineers are like, well, before COVID, were on site at Microsoft working on some of this stuff, um, like their their little partnership that they've got going on, um, and now they've got the same sort of thing going on with Google. Like all three of those are trying to do similar sort of stuff, but from their own perspective. I think it's gonna be super interesting to see like where Android adapts and changes and it'll also obviously be interesting once apple comes into this side of things shakes it all up as well because i i don't think they're going to be that far off right probably like two or three years away maybe yeah i mean i i think apple's apple apple and samsung are just like different in that way right like samsung will put out the not ready technology and be like this is this is it right they want to be seen as innovative right so Dieter, what's your read on the the google side of it because they seem very happy to have another vendor that wants to compete with Samsung. Microsoft and Samsung are super close, though, and Samsung is obviously doing all this App Store stuff. Like, what is the, what's Google's position here? Well, there's a rumor that there's a foldable Pixel coming along, so that won't matter. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, um, they have been very, very excited about foldables for a couple of years now. Um, I would like they, you know, I get to go and, and look at the version of Android that's going to be like official with all the new features pretty early. And it's been like two, almost three years that they've been like in foldables, man. It's real. Um, and maybe that's just they knew the Surface uh, Duo was coming and they knew the Galaxy Fold was coming. Um, but I feel like there's one more turn in the hardware that Google knows is coming that it's excited about. And it also knows that 
Android or something, Google needs some kind of operating system on a big screen that isn't Chrome OS in schools, right? They just, they do. They, they don't have a general computing platform that you use for your, your work unless you're like into Chrome OS and you stick with Chrome OS after you get out of school, right? Because uh, Android is terrible on big screens. And so Foldables gives them another crack at having a successful platform outside of phones, because they've, they've got it with Chrome OS in one context, but they don't have it in the generalized context the way that, like, Windows, Mac, or iPad does. Yeah. Like, the the, the thing that, that's really super interesting to me about all of this is that when they announced the Duo, Microsoft in that event in October, they also kind of announced a, a partnership with, with Google, right? With it. Like, they, they, they kind of didn't really dig into it, but the, the, the rumors are that there's, like, gives and takes that will go far beyond just Android. And if if you set it in the context of like what Apple's doing on the Mac and ARM side, and you see where that's going, where that could potentially lead to, then you see Samsung and Microsoft doing their partnership. Um, you could obviously see that's going to go up against that. And then it's like, where does Google fit in there? And where does Chrome OS fit in and, and Windows? And like, how do all those things sort of come together? Because Windows is basically the desktop equivalent of Android, Android, the mobile equivalent of Windows. So do we in the future see a partnership between Microsoft and Google where Android apps run on Windows? Oh, for sure. I totally buy that's going to happen. It's got to happen, right? Or some, something's got to give there. And the same, the same with like the Chrome OS stuff, like where that goes. Um, but there's definitely like such a different mix going on. And the, the Duo is just a part of that. And it's, it's you know, the, the, it's trying to be the, the future of mobile devices and stuff. But I think the fundamentals that are going, around, going on behind the scenes are going to be super interesting to watch. To see who does what and who gives what, whether it means I don't know. Microsoft's obviously gone down the edge route with Chromium. Like, what does that mean in the future? Like, there's there's so much stuff going on. I think the only obvious answer is that Microsoft and Google are going to merge, and we'll have <laughs> one more five-hour antitrust episode when that happens. We have gone incredibly long, Dieter. I just want you to read the four Android headlines because there's some Android headlines. Google is making every Android phone a seismometer to create a worldwide earthquake detection network. They're not the first ones to use phones as seismometers, but they're putting it in all of Android, which is huge. They have added better accessibility options to uh, their like Lookout app. Uh, they have uh, Dan loves this one. They've put the calendar app back in Android Auto, which is great. And then Dan especially loves the new Wear OS news. Can't wait. 20% faster. It'll almost be fast. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, and then, Tom, you scooped the new Xbox Series S out of a controller. Oh, yeah, that was a crazy weekend. Yeah. Xbox Series X coming on the 6th. Maybe it'll have Fortnite on it. Maybe it won't. Who knows? Well, maybe it'll come out on the 6th. Maybe. November 6th. Yeah. It's, 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 it's definitely coming out in November. That's all we know for sure. All right. A lot of news this week. Thank you for sticking with us through this, my 1L antitrust seminar. <laughs> I had a good time. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, let's see if I can do all the Twitter handles. Dan is DC Seifert. Dieter's Backlon. Tom is Tom Warren. I'm actually at EU. <laughs> yeah. If you have any questions about Microsoft, just tweet it to EU. Um, <laughs> see if they have any answers. You can... Read Dieter's newsletter, Processor, the Verge.com newsletter. Uh, there's obviously all kinds of other policy news happening in the world. Casey's newsletter, the interface, it comes back next week. On Tuesday, uh, this interview was super fun. Lana Swartz, who's a media professor at the University of Virginia, has a book about money and how money is a communications medium and network. We got all the way into how, at one point, the CEO of Starbucks was like, I will control one of the only digital currencies in the world. Wild book. Uh, that's coming out on Tuesday is the interview episode. We'll be back next Friday with the chat show. That's it. Rock and roll. Wear a mask. Wear a mask.
more to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.